Michael. The Godfather is the I Ching. The Godfather is the sum of all wisdom. The Godfather is the answer to any question. What should I pack for my summer vacation? Leave the gun, take the canola. Hello and welcome to the Director's Wall podcast, Popola Cast edition. I'm one of your co-hosts, AJ Gonzalez. I'm Brian Connolly, the other guy. All right. So we're back here once again in our respective houses doing responsible social distance podcasting. And we're here to talk about the movie we've all been waiting for, The Godfather. The reason why we're doing this podcast, the reason why anyone knows who Francis Ford Coppola is. Well, I've been looking forward to this since we started. All right, so let's first talk about our wine. So since we're still in quarantine, AJ and I each got a different bottle of wine because sometimes it's hard to line this up when you're just uh, relying on the two bottles that whatever nearest place will deliver to you or whatever. So why don't you do yours first? Because I believe yours one that we have done in the past on an episode. Yeah, we've definitely done this one before. It's the Francis Coppola Diamond Collection Blue Label Merlot, the 2017. Uh, the back says that our Merlot has fragrant notes of plums, currants, and anise. Anise? Sure. <laughs> it's that word that neither of us can pronounce and lively flavors of blueberry pie, cherries, and toasted oak, delicious with beef tenderloin, grilled lamb chops, or aged cheeses. Learn more about our wines at francisfordcopolawinery.com. I remember having this now because when you read the label, it made me want to have beef tenderloin, grilled lamb, and aged cheeses. <laughs> it's not an easy meal to throw together. <laughs> Um, and it's all right. I, uh, I probably feel the same way this time as I did the last time about this red. I felt like The Godfather was like a red wine kind of movie. Definitely. And like at the wedding scene in the beginning, they're drinking literally pitchers that normally would hold beer or water in a restaurant full of red wine. So the What's wine, wine? is the Coppola Rosso and Bianco Pinot Grigio. And it's a fancy looking bottle. And on the back, you have a little, a little quote, I'm assuming, from Francis Ford Coppola. My first impression about wine was really at age five or six, and it comes from a memory of my father's father, Augustino Coppola. They would buy a boxcar load of California grapes to make homemade wines. I heard many stories of how happy they were when the grapes would finally come and were locked up behind a trap door that led to the cellars. They weren't fancy wines, mind you but pleasurable everyday wines that reflected the comfort of home. Our Pinot Grigio is made in the same spirit, a wine for everyday life. And then you get another quote from Coppola that he signs on the front. My family has always made wine. To hear it from my father, Carmine, these were not fancy wines. They were everyday wines, wines that were on the dinner table each night. Our Rosso and Bianca wines are made in the same spirit, Wines for Everyday Life. This is a 2017. And um, this is my second bottle. I had one when I watched The Godfather. Uh, that was a two-bottle movie. I had what you had and this. And now I'm on this again. And I got to say, I think this is the best white 
This is the best couple of white we've had so far. It's oh, I'm missing out. I'm pretty sure I could have gotten that from the grocery store. Well, you know, since we're wild card right now, if, if, if it's hard to line it up since we can't be in the same room. Even our governor says we can, but fuck him. I'm not listening to that guy. <laughs> but yeah, I'm, uh, I'm really not looking forward to being part of the second spike. You don't have to. Just stay home. That's what I'm doing. Uh, stay home, watch TV, drink Coppola wine. But next time, grab a bottle just for yourself because it's really good. Because also stores, even if things are open, are still limited in what they're getting, shipping around, you know, depending on how open the world is. So, but you know what? We've never had a, co a bad Coppola wine yet. There hasn't been one yet that I would send back. So it's all been pretty good. That's right. Um, I probably said this last time we had this, I had this Merlot. I can't remember what episode that was, but this is a, it's a less intense red. The red wines in general, I'm not a big fan of because I feel like you need the food, you need the, the beef or the whatever to go with the wine to take the edge off of the red. But this actually goes down quite nicely. It, it feels light in a good way. Like you can just drink it like, uh, like we're drinking now without the aid of heavy, heavy meat. You should uh, dunk bread in it like they do in that other gangster movie, The Irishman. Remember that? How like Joe Pesci and Robert De Niro like are dunking bread in their red wine and eating it? Oh, that is yeah. like the oh. best meal you could ever have. It's amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's so sad at the end of the movie when they're in prison and they're drinking like, st they're eating stale bread and grape juice and pretending that it's wine and they're eating like they're having a good meal. <laughs> it's so well, sad. I love that movie. Never do a Scorsese cast. We can do a stale uh, bread grape juice uh, theme. There's a lot of good food, food themes that could come from The Irishman. As my wife and I, we always plan our Oscar night menu based on the Best Picture nominees. And with uh, The Irishman, you had the option of the, uh, do you like steak? I could get you good steak. Steak. <laughs> you have the bad news salad. Uh, Jimmy Hoffa's Sunday. Or... So, actually, that is the most ice cream eating movie ever. Like, no one told me, like, I feel like totally ripped off that everyone who told me that movie was great never mentioned how much ice cream Al Pacino eats in that movie. He eats at least five Sundays in that movie. Like, that's the real star of The Irishman was those Sundays. Like, it's a major plot point. Prison, he's in a Sunday in prison. Yeah, and because he can't eat a Sunday this major problem opens up for him that fuels, you know, the, the second hour of the movie. Let Jimmy Hoffa eat his damn Sunday. <laughs> so whose turn is it to recap the plot? Is it my uh, turn? It is your turn. Oh, yeah. man. I get the longer, well, I guess this is as long as Patton. But more happens in this than Patton. All right. Well, this is, luckily, this is a movie that everybody's seen, so I can, like, do the Cliff, Cliff's Notes version. So The Godfather, okay, based on the great book by Mar Mario Puzo. Is that how you say his name? Puzo? 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 Sure. Uh, and you start with this big wedding. Like the movie starts with a big wedding. And, uh, and you're at the house of Don Corleone. And you, he's taking meetings with people while celebrating his daughter's uh, wedding. And through this very long scene, you are introduced to the entire family. Uh, Don uh, Corleone, played by the great Marlon Brando. You get uh, James Caan 
as uh, Sonny, his son. You have Al Pacino as Michael. You have Robert Duvall as Tom Hagen, who's not technically the son, but was kind of adopted into the family at a very young age and sort of acts as their financial, like lawyer type person. Like, was that, yeah? Is that what you Yeah, he, he, he's their lawyer. Officially, he's the consigliere. Yeah. Uh, and then, of course, the uh, sister, uh, Connie, played by T Talia Shire, who is Coppola's cousin? Is that right? No, his sister. Oh, really? That's his sister. His sister. And, uh, and they're all there celebrating this uh, wedding, and they're all clearly in the mafia. Though they, The entire movie, they never says the word mafia, I believe. Is that true? I don't think they ever actually say those words. That is true. Uh, don't want to get sued by the mafia. Uh, and then Michael's really the only one who's sort of not part of it. He, he just came back from World War II, and he's just like not interested in the family business where everybody else is very much involved in it. Um, and yeah, so, we, so uh, Don Vito's taking meetings with people, like kind of the type of meetings you expect a mob boss to take of like, kill these guys, I don't like this guy, he did this thing to my daughter, or help me with this thing. And then they're celebrating this wedding. Um, and then you basically, that's like the first part of the movie. Then you go into this part of the movie where you kind of see the process of how this family does their dealings via this character who's an actor, clearly based on Frank Sinatra. <laughs> that got mob ties, but he's, 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 he's this guy who was, he once had the Corleone family help him out of a bind he had with a band leader that wouldn't let him out of the band and they gave the band leader an offer he couldn't refuse, meaning they would kill him if they didn't uh, do it. Uh, in real life, that band leader, I believe, was Tommy Dorsey, who wouldn't let Frank Sinatra go. <laughs> And you kind of go through this process of Frank Sinatra wants to be in this movie in Hollywood. This, the producer doesn't want him in it. So you kind of follow through as uh, uh, the Robert Duvall character, Tom, goes to Hollywood, meets with the producer, played by the great uh, John Marley, who was in uh, Faces, Casavetti's Faces, and the amazing movie Death Dream. But uh, so he's his producer, and he's like, no, I'm not going to let this guy in my movie. And then you go through like why he should have because they cut off the head of his prize horse, throw it in the bed with him. He wakes up this bloody head of the horse and is like, I guess Frank Sinatra's in this movie because I don't want to get murdered by the mafia. Then what happens in every great mob movie post The Godfather, uh, one half of the family really wants to get into the drug dealing business. And then the older people are like, no, nah, that's going to mess it up. That's going to screw things up. And the young guys are like, no, no, this is a good idea. And the old guys are like, no, 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 this is going to screw things out, these drugs. And so they have a meeting with this other family uh, where the head of it is played by Al Latiri, who is the villain in The Getaway. And he's great always. He's a great, he was in, I think it was Mr. Majestic was the uh, uh, Bronson movie he's a villain into. So he plays the guy, the, the mobster guy who's like, drugs is the future. I'm doing it. You, your family join me. We're doing it. Marlon Brando's like, no. I'm not doing it. Everyone's like, you were old fashioned. You were out of touch. So Alatiri's family decides to, you know, let's take out this uh, Corleone family and that because they're not helping us with the drugs and they're going to ruin it for us. So then it kind of turns into this war between the families and people like uh, Marley, uh, Don Corleone gets shot while he's trying to buy oranges. And uh, then he's in the hospital and they're sending him into the hospital and it like, kind of keeps going back and forth. And that's most of the movie for a while is sort of like this slow war with lots of people dying 
James Conn gets shot at a like a toll booth looking thing. It looks like um, it just uh, bad things happen. Then it leads to the best scene in the movie where Michael's like, I'll deal with this. I'll do it. I'll kill him at a Italian restaurant. Hide a gun for me in the toilet. So he goes in, shoots the guy, <laughs> shoots a corrupt cop played by the great Sterling Hayden from Stanley Kubrick's The Killing. Uh, and then he, then that's kind of where the intermission of the movie is in a way. There's no, actually no intermission of the movie. I don't know if there was one. There was intended to be an intermission. It was supposed to happen right there, which is why there's this big music cue. Mm -hmm. And then the scene after that is a montage of uh, newspaper headlines about the new gangland war. And the newspaper actually spins as it's approaching the camera. And that was meant to be the start of the second act to get people back into the movie. But Paramount production chief Robert Evans decided, no, we're not doing an intermission. I don't want to say that this was the first three-hour movie, a two-and-a-half-plus-hour movie to have no intermission. Walter Murch and the other people working on post-production were prepared to have an intermission, and Evans said, no, no intermission. Right now at that scene, we've got them on the hook. <laughs> Audience is going to be too invested. They're going to just sit there and watch the rest of the movie, no matter how long it is. He was correct. So then Michael Corleone Pacino goes to Italy to kind of hide out and cool, uh, like things cool down from killing this cop and this guy. Uh, falls in love with the late young lady, gets married to her very quickly. She then dies very quickly, gets blown up uh, by people clearly working for other families. He comes back to America. Um, oh, I forgot to mention the other brother, uh, Fredo, of course. Played. Well, the movie nearly forgets Fredo's. Uh, great John Cassell. And he's off to Vegas to kind of help kind of start mob ties in Las Vegas. Then you kind of, you go through, like basically the second half of the movie is Michael becoming sort of the head of the family as Marlon Brando gets too old. And then as Marlon Brando eventually dies of natural causes in, in a playing with his grandson, putting an orange in his mouth or whatever he's doing. And then it's just uh, yeah, Pacino like wiping out the other families, being like, we're the only game in town. Uh, he, oh, I forgot to mention Diane Keaton's uh, Michael's girlfriend at the beginning. She comes back at the end and she asks him, like, are you in the mob? Because she has no five senses, I guess, to see clearly that definitely he is. But he's like, no, no, I'm not. She's like, okay. And then, <laughs> so, they, so she stays with them. And then the movie ends uh, with the great uh, final shot of the, the door closing with uh, Michael in the room basically being treated the same way that uh, Don Corleone was at the very beginning of the movie. And yeah, Clemenza, Don Corleone's right-hand man, is now kissing Michael's ring, and the door closes on Diane Keaton. The last thing you see is her face being shut out. And the movie just ends. It's a slow, like it winds down, but it still feels abrupt when it happens. Great yeah. ending. And so that's basically the movie in a nutshell. Movie is so good. I can watch this movie all the time. It's, it is 175 minutes or something. Never boring at all. Like Robert Evans is right. Like you're just stuck there. You don't want to pee. You don't want to leave. You're just like going to watch the whole movie, which is rare for a movie of this length. Like usually in a long movie, there's some downtime or there's like the part where like, oh, I can go get some popcorn in. This, this isn't going to be a long scene of talking. This, I don't need this, you know, like, but this movie, it's like, it's all good. It just has a great 
drive to it. And I think the structure of it really works, like starting with like this big event, introducing all the characters, going through kind of the structure of how they work into this sort of bigger problem, into other little problems. And it's just like, it's so well-written, it's so well done. I love it. Yeah. I think this is a movie that people are gonna like. I think people are gonna appreciate this movie. <laughs> yeah, the, um, the wedding scene that starts this movie is fully 27 minutes long. And that's a really long first act. The first act of most movies is anywhere between five to 10 minutes. Here are the main characters, here's what it's like for them normally, now a big change happens. And it, it's, uh, the book starts out with the wedding and uh, people visiting Don Corleone asking him for favors. And that's the longest chapter in the book. It's the longest scene in the movie. It's both brilliant and daring to start the movie with this 27 minute first act, just introducing people oh so slowly and showing you how the Corleone family does business, how Don Corleone in particular does business. Like someone comes and asks him for a favor, he grants it, but then says like one day I'll ask you and that day may never come. I'll ask you to do a favor for me. But then we see other, and that would be enough in a normal movie, but we see other people come and ask him for favors. And what I really noticed this time is that one person asks him specifically for violence. And that's the undertaker who opens the movie. The very first shot of the movie is just a close-up shot on this guy's face. And he says, I believe in America, which to me is, it's, it's, I love that opening line of this movie about the mafia and about family. And that's an allegory for capitalism. And he talks about how he really does believe in America. I've made my fortune in America. I raised my daughter in the American fashion. And when something bad happened to her, he waited for the American justice system to help him now because he's been a good American citizen and it doesn't help him. These uh, men that attacked his daughter, it's kind of unclear. They tried to rape her. They at the very least assaulted her and the judge sentenced them to like three years in prison then suspended the sentence. So they were found guilty, but didn't actually go to prison. And he feels that justice was not served. So he goes to Don Corleone to ask for justice. And Don Corleone says, but your daughter is not dead. You are not asking for justice. You're asking for revenge. And it's a very long scene between them, but it sets up that what Don Corleone does is he doesn't just do murder for hire. The undertaker says, I'll pay you whatever you want. But what Don Corleone really wants and what he actually really does legitimately want, it seems to be, is the friendship of this undertaker. The Undertaker's name is Bonacera. His name in the book, I don't know if his name is said in the movie, but his name is Amerigo Bonacera. So his name is actually America. And there's a man saying, I believe in America, and tells a story about how America has failed for him. And Don Corleone finally agrees in return for the friendship of The Undertaker. So that sets up the way Don Corleone specifically takes care of business He's in crime and there's murder involved, but he's doing it like the, the best way you could possibly do the mafia. You know, <laughs> if there was ever a right way to do the mafia, Don Corleone is doing it. He's not asking for personal gain 
from these people. Like the second person asks him for a favor is a um, baker. One of his employees who is an Italian citizen, he's going about to get deported. Don, he asks Don Corleone if he can help uh, his assistant stay in the country. Don Corleone says, okay. And Johnny Fontaine, the Frank Sinatra allegedly stand-in, doesn't ask for violence against the Jack Waltz's studio head. He just asks for help getting this part. Mm-hmm. I mean, he knows what his godfather is capable of, but he doesn't specifically ask for violence. And Don Corleone helps his godson because that's his godson. And he's very proud of Johnny Fontaine. He stops taking meetings. Don Corleone really sees everything he does as taking care of his family. So Don Corleone is a with a million asterisks, he, he's a good man. He's a good father to his family, a good godfather to the people he sees as depending on him. Did I do all that in one breath? I like this movie. I don't know if, uh, if that came across. There's so much iconic stuff in this movie. It just made it into the world, like into regular conversation, like not just like the music, which is just very iconic and memorable, and everyone knows the theme to the god, like it's stuck in your head after you watch this movie forever. But there's like, yeah, the line, the, some of the lines and the ideas of like the offer he, you know, couldn't refuse, the uh, leave the gun, take the cannolis, uh, Luca Brazzi sleeps with the fishes, like all these things that like we just know as people. Like it's like whether you've seen the god for or not, people just know. Th- know this stuff like the horse head in the bed and there's just so much and and like the way marlon brenner's acting is with the cotton balls and stuff became such a thing that people parodied and and referenced forever uh, even in a movie with marlon brenner the freshman which is a great movie where he's basically playing john corleone again but in a comedy with uh matthew broderick in a uh was it a iguana komodo dragon whatever that komodo is. dragon highly recommend the freshman it's a, it's a really good movie it's, it's like, it reminds me of like when you first watch like Touch of Evil or Sunset Boulevard or The Seven Samurai. It's like these movies that you know about. You know, like if you're into movies, you know about it. If you're not into movies, you kind of know about it. Like you just, if you're aware of pop culture or art or film, like these are movies that are always talked about, that are always considered great, like the great movies. And I think you... Tend to, people tend to take it for granted. I know I do. Where I'm like, yeah, yeah, that movie's great. And then when you f- watch it for the first time, you're like, oh, this movie is really good. Like, there's a reason why everyone loves this movie. Why everyone talks about it all the time because like it is that good, and it still is that good. Like, I haven't seen this movie in ten years, probably. It's been at least ten years for me. And I just don't think to watch it because there's so many movies in the world, and I eat movies for dinner, so I just will eat movies. Like, I'll just watch a movie all the time. And you just forget, like, when you watch it, you're like, oh, yeah, this movie's great. I should be watching this movie more often. It's so good. And it's just, it's fun when there's actually, like, movies that live up to, you know, what it's supposed to be, you know, like how people talk about it. It's really weird when you think about it, how much The Godfather has intertwined itself into pop culture so that people reference it in their everyday lives without even knowing that they're referencing this movie other movies and tv shows will reference the godfather and it's always in this way where it's not like everyone referencing like austin powers <laughs> right after that movie came out for a few years and then finally everyone got tired of it and now no one 
talks about Austin Powers anymore or does those lines, even though the first movie is actually pretty funny. And if you forget about everyone doing horrible Austin Powers impressions and rewatch the first movie, it's pretty funny on its own. Any TV show or movie can reference The Godfather at any given time. You never ask yourself, why are they referencing that movie now? There's an episode of Modern Family that references The Godfather, Office visually references The Godfather at one point. The forever sort of movie. I, I feel this definitely must have been how a lot of people learned about the mob in a way. Like his gangster movies before this were like gangster movies like like the original Scarface or, you know, like, like Public Enemy number one or whatever, where it was just sort of like you had your Al Capone type guy and, you know, like he's the king of the world and then he gets taken down. It's like a story, like a downfall of like one criminal where you have like the untouchables like dealing with Al Capone. Like this movie gets into the, well, then they're usually always villains too. Uh, but in this, in this movie, they're not portrayed as villains. Like they are all you have in this movie to root for. <laughs> and, and like in this movie goes into like what you said with Brando's character, like they're kind of their version of a code, sort of like their, how they do moral, like what they think is the moral high ground for them and what works for them, what makes sense to them, even though they are okay killing people and things, but they still have like these rules which is in so many mob movies post Godfather, like even like Goodfellas has it of like, this is like, we do these things, but we don't do these things. This is the way we are. And there's a certain thing of honor and if in dishonor and Sopranos goes into that. And like, they have like their way of justifying the crime they're doing is, is like, like in this movie with Brando kind of in his mind thinking like, I'm helping these people out. I'm helping my community out. Like we're doing people a service, like, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think, like, definitely gangster movies changed after The Godfather. You couldn't really just have it just be this some bad guy, like, on a cigar shooting people with a machine gun, you know, doing, you know, like, it's like they, with this and with a year later with Mean Streets that came out in 73, that kind of changed the course of how Italian-Americans are portrayed in movies in general. Because I think Hollywood before this didn't have a lot of them in movies portrayed the way they actually were. You'd have you know, occasionally, but with this, Mean Streets, The Rise of Pacino, De Niro, Sylvester Stallone, like you had like actual Italian-Americans in your movies, in, in stories about these kind of families and this, this the way of life and the way that they, they are, their upbringing. Yeah. It's, it's funny to think about it in the 21st century, but for only part of the 20th century have Italians been considered, or people of Italian descent been considered white? <laughs> like up through maybe World War II, Italians, they were European, but they weren't really like, you know, they weren't really white. Like they were a minority. And so whenever an Italian showed up in movie, uh, they, uh, they talk like this and like, oh, I'm a baker. Or I'm very flamboyantly Italian and I design dresses for women. And if they're toughs, if they're, it's, they're like purely villains, they're still a sort of exaggerated stereotype. And it comes to Godfather starring some real Italians. And James Caan. And, and James Caan. And Marlon Brando. But I mean, there weren't actors like El Pacino, you know, before El Pacino. And people kind of forget that there wasn't, like... Like when you when I watched uh, Rocky, 
not to go on a true tangent, I, I watched the making of, and they talked about how they wanted like Robert Redford to play Rocky and like John Voight and like people like that. And Sylvester Stallone be like, no, no, this character's me. Like it's someone like me, like I, like I should play this. And then be like, nobody wants to see anyone like you in a movie. Like why would anyone watch a movie starring someone like you? Like this, this actual Italian American guy who doesn't like look like Robert Redford. And then he started it and it was a big deal. Cause I was like, oh, like this is like, this type of guy can be the star. And like the seventies is all about that, which is now that we're getting into the seventies is great when you get these weird actors and actresses that we now don't think are weird, but at the time were, because before the seventies, the people who were the stars of movies were mostly white people, pretty attractive people, like, like not normal looking. Cause that doesn't make, that's not a thing, but like this sort of like very, you know, just handsome, beautiful white people. And then you have the seventies where you have like, Robert De Niro is not a normal looking guy. Like Dustin Hoffman is not normal. Gene Hackman, uh, Karen Black, uh, like these type, like Jack Nicholson, like these are the new stars, like Elliot Gould. I, I wish I'd been around in the 70s because instead be of- a Movie. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, I'd be the lead in major Hollywood movies instead of like in- Normal looking guy and he got to be the star of movies in the 70s. Yeah, I'd rather compete with uh, I'd rather compete with Ben Gazzara for Audrey Hepburn than William Holden. But this movie is just like not just with the Italian Americans, but with like every like I just kept writing down like all, every actor that showed up. Be like, oh, it's that person. Oh, it's this guy. Like to see um, Joe Spinell shows up in it. Maniac from the movie Maniac. Uh, Alex Rocco is great as Mo Green. I love Alex Rocco. So many. This good, this good, weird, like, like Abe Vigoda, who strangely kind of looks young, as young as an Abe Vigoda can look, I guess, is in this movie. Um, yeah, he got this job through an open casting call. Abe Vigoda did? Yeah, they just had Coppola. He always tried to have a few days of just open casting calls for the smaller parts on his movies just to give everyone a shot. You never know, like all the talent out there. And Abe Vigoda got cast as Tessio and, I mean, launched his very long career afterwards. And he's really good in this movie. The part near the end where he knows he's going to die and he kind of begs for his life, is, that part is so good. Where he's just sort of like, can you give me a chance? Like, come on, is there, is there anything? And, like, mm. and uh, he, he's great. Like, it's not a big character, but he brings a lot to it. And then, yeah, like, I think a year or two after this, he was this, one of the stars of Barney Miller. All the way through Good Burger, great actor. Always was great. <laughs> Abe Vigoda. Um, He's one of those guys that would show up in like literally anything, but you always had respect for him as a professional actor. The movie is it's it's one of those movies too where it was it's often parodied, but it's still good. It's like how Psycho is still good. Like you can still be wowed by the shower scene, even though that scene's been parodied so many times but it's just funny when watching this movie remembering all the times it was made fun of like oh i remember when analyze this where they have the dream where robert is buying the oranges and he gets you know shot or the great movie jane austen's mafia which references the godfather quite a bit it's it, what's interesting too about this movie with the performances when watching it is like this was sort of the beginning of the new way that people made fun of marlon brando like before this it was sort of like you had your like method acting like streetcar named desire wild one sort of marlon brando who was very big and very you know sexy sweaty big guy 
uh, in his performances. And then this is when you get really get into like the mumbly, like really deep into like whatever weird actor thing he's onto. Like this is getting into his like cue cards, earpiece sort of uh, era of, and it also gets into like him supposedly being the star of the movie, but then not actually being it that much. Like for the movie called The Godfather, opening with him, there's a lot of this movie where he's just away. He's just like in the hospital or he's old somewhere. And he's like the screen, the actual amount of screen time that The Godfather has is very little compared to like everybody else in the movie. The Godfather took up three of the five supporting actor nominees. One of those was Al Pacino as Michael Corleone. The star who star of the movie? <laughs> yeah, he he didn't like refuse the nomination or anything, but he made it known he felt that it was category fraud because he had, and he's correct, more screen time than Marlon Brando, who won the Oscar for Best Actor and then refused it uh, quite publicly and politically. And had what was it? Sachin Littlefeather accepted for him. Yeah, she accepted it for him and gave a speech that he wrote about why he was not accepting it. The year before was the other couple of the movie, Patton, where George C. Scott, or not a year before, but the year, two years before, where, where George C. Scott refused Best Actor for Patton. So that was, that doesn't happen anymore. Is that the last time that happened with those two guys? And then no one again was like, I don't want it. Like, I know Woody Allen doesn't show up, but I'm assuming someone brings him the Oscar. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if anyone in the modern, well, this is the modern era. I don't know if anyone recently that has flat out refused an Oscar. There are people that just don't show up, like Eminem didn't show up to get his Oscar. But I feel like going back to Brando being Hurley in this movie, it's, uh, I feel like that kept going in the 70s. You had Apocalypse Now, where everyone knew who's in it, and he doesn't show up till the very end. But he's a character that everyone talks about through the whole movie. So he's like mentioned, like, oh, Colonel Kurtz, oh, Colonel Kurtz. The whole movie, you're like, oh, where's Marilyn Brando? And then at the very end. And then he, you know, gets the most pay for Richard Donner's Superman. And he's own- the first build in the Superman. Yeah, I think he definitely was, you know, getting weird by this point. And then also watching this movie now, and it's been a while, this is a different Al Pacino than we know. Because this is a quiet kind of looking down at his hands, sort of Al Pacino. And now we're used to the big, loud, yelly, you know, no, woman, uh, Al Pacino. And so it's interesting to be like, no, no, this is when he was like kind of more of a quiet kind of, you know, maybe a little mumbly, just kind of like quiet guy looking around all the time. And now we're so used to the big, bigger than life, screaming everything, <laughs> Al Pacino. <laughs> yeah, I was, uh, I was just talking about this with my wife earlier that being you know born when i was born and al pacino had already become you know al pacino and diane keaton had already become diane keaton and then to see them in this very early this movie very early in their career and not only do they like look younger and it takes me a while to recognize diane keaton because she has such bad hairdos throughout this movie that she doesn't look like herself she has some very unflattering hairdos especially at the end but uh Al Pacino in particular, his acting style is totally different because he's not Al Pacino yet. He's just some young actor who was in like Panic in Needle Park. I think Godfather is maybe like his third movie. He never really has a moment where he blows up or uh, or screams. He has a few of those moments in Godfather too, if I remember correctly. 
But yeah, it's a total different style of performance. He didn't look like him. He didn't look like Al Pacino. And I think it was because his hair was combed forward and down mm-hmm. to make him look really young. And then when he becomes the head of the family, his hair is combed back and he looks more like Al Pacino. And this movie really, in the same way that American Graffiti did, which came out what, a year after this, two years after this? One, like, yeah, it's 73. Everybody in this movie became like a big star. You know, like this movie, this is the movie that kind of made these people. Like this, like we saw the Rain People a few episodes ago and that had Robert Duvall and James Caan in it. But they weren't really like, Super solidified as Hollywood stars, I feel, until like this movie. Like Robert Duvall was in MASH before this. But then this came out and you have like them being the stars of things. You have like James Caan being the lead in movies like The Gambler, Slither, Al Pacino, just like just star rising, like being in Serpico and Dog Day Afternoon and all these all these great movies. And it's in Diane Keaton, like just who knew that like she would, you know, like eight years later, Annie Hall be so good and all these people just becoming huge, huge stars. All because, all because everybody in America saw this movie. Like, this movie was such a hit. Like, wasn't it at the time the biggest money-making movie uh, in America? I think to recall. At the time, as far as people going out to the movies and buying a ticket to watch this movie, it outgrossed Gone with the Wind. Gone with the Wind was like the last big phenomenon like this that just sort of took over the culture and everyone has seen it and everyone had to have seen it multiple times for it to make this much money i think people forgot that the godfather did so well because in the same way that people forgot how well like the exorcist did because then you had jaws and star wars come out and those movies made like a lot of money so then like the what made the most money is now like way hot the bar is raised so much like by the end of the 70s and into the 80s like what a true blockbuster movie is like this this is pre-spielberg blockbuster movie and so for the godfather to come out when it did and be as big as it did was a huge deal to paramount studios financially and to movie going in general and to think that a three-hour drama would attract this much attention this much money at the box office it is really crazy now in in the 21st century way of thinking it's not even an epic drama. It's not like Gone with the Wind or Patton where there's these big sweeping scenes of, you know, it's like, it is a very intimate movie in its way. So it's not like you get this big epic gangster thing. It really is just like an intimate movie. Just, it's, just a, it's just a long story. And that, is, that makes it even more interesting that it did so well because it's not this big effects, action, you know, breathtaking shot sort of movie. Um, and for a movie like that to do so well is very rare, I think. Marlon Brando, who at the time is just sort of like his comeback in a way because he had gotten a little weird and older and wasn't in movies that everybody saw all the time. And so yeah. the movie that kind of brought him, brought him back. The um, president of Paramount said that he would never cast Marlon Brando in this movie because Marlon Brando was seen as box office poison. His titles before this, like between Mutiny on the Bounty in 62 and and this Godfather in 72, aside from like The Chase, I never heard of, I never seen. Reflections in the Golden Eye, 
that movie's very weird. The Countess from Hong Kong, Bedtime Story, The Ugly American. And he had a good year in 72 because it's also the same year he did Last Tango in Paris, which was also a huge hit in its own way, which is like a very popular, scandalous, erotic movie uh, where the erotic star is Marlon Brando. Uh, so <laughs> Very peculiar. Because of Patton winning the award, it probably gave Coppola the ability to pick who he wanted uh, for this movie, you know, he's just a screenwriter, but like, I think like he, it definitely feels like he made the movie he wanted to make with this and got the the cast that he wanted for this movie. Did anyone uh, famously turn down a part of this movie? Was there anyone that it was offered to and they're like, I don't want to do that? I don't know that anyone turned down the movie, but actors like Laurence Olivier were considered for the role of the Godfather because Olivier was like the right age but he was also in ill health. And for Michael Corleone, it was between, you guessed it, Robert Redford or Ryan O'Neill. Well, Robert Redford, bless his heart, he survived the 70s. He was still given, even though this was the decade of actually getting new types of faces on the screen. Another actor we should talk about is, is John Cassell as Fredo. Even though in this movie, it's like a bit part. In part two, we're going to get much more, much more of him. But he, he died pretty young as an actor. He was like 42, I think, when he died of uh, cancer, I think. But he is widely considered the only actor with a perfect filmography because it was such a short amount of time. He was only in like five movies, but they're all considered like the greatest movies of all time. He was in The Godfather. They were all nominated for Best Picture. It's the only actor to claim that, I think. He was in, yeah, Godfather, Godfather 2, The Conversation, uh, Dog Day Afternoon, and then The Deer Hunter. Three of those movies won Best Picture, and the other two are just still well-regarded movies of new classic era of Hollywood. And he was, he's a very good actor, and he's a very, just like some of these other people, he's a very interesting person. He's not traditionally someone that you would have put in a movie, not in a bigger role like he was in some of these other things, like maybe in like a bit role. And he was engaged to Meryl Streep at the time when he passed away. And he's just yeah. considered one of the great, just because he's great, and it happens to be in just the five great movies of the time. Yeah, around this time, the New York theater scene where all these guys are getting their start, like Cazelle and Pacino, and they were in like Shakespeare in the Park together. And Pacino tells a story that Cazelle was talking to him about this girl he was in a play with. And like, oh my God, she's like just the best actress ever. And like, are, are, are you dating this girl? Like, you know, are you attracted to her, John? Like, well, yeah, 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 we're kind of dating. And Petrina rolls his eyes like, okay, like, yeah, yeah, I guess I see why you think she's the greatest actress ever. And then he goes to see the play that uh, Cazelle and this actress are in, and, it, and it's Meryl Streep. <laughs> the greatest like, actress of all time. <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, yeah, hey, hey, guys, like, th this is the greatest actress of all time. No, really the greatest actress ever there's a great documentary about john cazale called i knew it was you it's a short documentary less than an hour if you can track it down i highly recommend it it's a great great portrait of this guy who died too early and was a real really great actor who we only see a glimpse of here and we'll talk about a lot more in godfather 2 it's also interesting thinking of best and things now in 2020 the Godfather is sort of now considered the best movie, greatest movie of all time. It kind of took the throne of uh, Vertigo, which took the throne of Citizen Kane. Because like whenever people do these lists every 10 years or whatever, and for the longest time it was 
Citizen Kane. I remember that in childhood that was considered like, this is the greatest film of all time and I had to go see it. But then in the aughts, it was Vertigo. Vertigo kind of bumped it down and everyone was like, no, no, Vertigo is the greatest movie of all time. It's, it's, this is the best movie. And now within the last few years, it's kind of become the godfather. Like these lists every few years come out. And it's just interesting uh, how when you look at those three movies, it's almost like a jump, like 12 years ahead every time around there, a little bit more. I wonder, because right now, Godfather is now like the top of many lists. I mean, this is the great film of all time. And I wonder what movie from like the late 80s, early 90s and 10 years <laughs> will take this play of like as, as the old die and the young you know, take over. And like now people like Citizen Kane has kind of dropped, even though that held that throne. And now it's The Godfather. I just wonder like how long will The Godfather have that reign of being considered the greatest film, the greatest American film of all time. And it is just because it's like this movie's old, but not old enough to be totally forgotten about or like young people will actually sit and watch the godfather still but maybe not citizen kane <laughs> yeah, like citizen kane which so the afi when they first did their 100 bit, uh, greatest list in 1997 it was citizen kane casablanca godfather and you know say what you will about lists or whatever but that the afi list it's meant to really be a primer like you want to know about movies about film history watch these movies and the order outside the top 10 doesn't really matter. And then when they updated their list in 2007, I guess they were going to do it every 10 years like the British Sight and Sound magazine does, but they didn't do it in 2017. Anyway, when they did it in 07, Citizen Kane was still number one. Godfather had moved to number two. And Citizen Kane, people have to ask and delve into the making of that film and the way films were made at the time to understand why that is considered, quote unquote, the greatest film ever made. Remind me of when I first saw Breathless and I was like, I hate this movie. Wow, well, who cares? And then when I read more about it, I was like, oh, this is why people like it so much. It's the first movie to be like, we're just gonna go in the street and make a movie. We're not gonna use a tripod. We're gonna use live sound. We're gonna have a loose structured script. We're just gonna like, yeah, this is like a homemade thing. Before that was a thing. This is like nope. cinema before you knew what independent cinema was. Oh, okay, I get why this is considered so great. I just took it for granted because I'd seen a million handheld whatever movies since then, you know, and movies where people just running around, you know, doing kind of improvisational performances in the, in, in the filmmaking. The Godfather, it didn't really change groundbreaking cinematically, like as far as uh, the language of cinema as like Citizen Kane and Breathless. It's just really the story and the way it's told and what it's about that it can be about so many different things all at the same time. Five different film students could write papers on The Godfather and they'd all be about five different things just about the family, about organized crime, or about capitalism, or about the American dream gone horribly wrong, or did it ever go wrong because the American dream was just whatever you can do to make your own, your own path and take care of your own family. There are people that are like really obsessed with The Godfather, and it's all for different reasons. Um, back in college, I met a girl, and 
early on in us getting to know each other, I she mentioned something about The Godfather, and I like kind of lit up and talked about it a little bit. And then she asked with caution, um, are you one of those guys that really likes The Godfather? <laughs> <laughs> I was able to say, like, not like that. Like, I like it because it's a good movie. I'm not really, like, think of it as, like, a philosophy or anything, which certain <laughs> people do. The Godfather is has become one of those like getting to know you questions like oh this guy's really into the godfather okay maybe i don't want to go forward with this <laughs> we're still good friends i guess at the time i read that actual gangsters didn't care for this movie they loved mean streets to them like when mean streets came out a year after this that was their because they were like this is more about what it's like. This is more the real version of what it's like to be these types of guys in, in America, in New York or whatever, and not the Godfather. That's like the old way or a movie way. And it's just interesting to think like you have the Godfather and then a year later, little Martin Scorsese comes up with his big breakthrough movie, Mean Street, which is definitely the more personal uh, version of like kind of these sort of more like, more like street hoods. Like this isn't like the mafia but they're more like Italian-American street hoods, like dealing with more petty crimes in a smaller surrounding, in a more intimate uh, way of telling the story. Yeah, like and, I think in one scene, those, some of those characters, they like scam some teenagers out of money that they're supposed to buy fireworks for the teenagers. Yeah. It's like those are the kinds of crimes going on in, in Mean Streets. Harvey Keitel is the nephew of a local mafia like captain, not the big boss, but like a, a lieutenant, like Tessio or Clemenza. The Godfather is definitely much more Shakespearean. It feels like those the plays he did about like you know the different kings and stuff like that, where it's about the different families and they're warring with other families and like, but all in this high up sort of royal court, sort of like reading like uh, King Henry the Sixth, Part One through Three, or Richard the Third, or whatever. It's about the troubles and drama between families up here. And then you have your little people in there to work for these people. And it's like this kind of this, this, this epic tale of, of like drama within this family. You know, the future of what it means to have their, their empire and they don't want their empire to fall apart and gain power. See all these different power plays. And it is, it is very Shakespearean in that way. Like really the only small character you kind of get from millisecond is Luca Brazzi in The Godfather. Like you have the beginning at the wedding where you see him practicing what he's going to say to Don Corleone, like to congratulate him on the wedding day of his daughter. And it's him like practicing over and over again, like by himself to the point where Diane Keaton is like, who's this crazy guy talking to himself over there? And he is definitely sort of someone who works for these people to carry out the deeds that they need done. And he's the, and you, and he is definitely the most famous character of that level from this movie because everyone knows about him because he sleeps with the fishes. But like you get him at the beginning practicing the speech, going to the Godfather, giving his speech, and then he is the first sort of like sad death <laughs> and he gets killed instantly. Another death like that is the death of Sonny, famously on the causeway where James Conn gets shot up by like 10 guys, each with a machine gun. In the book, his death happens the same way, but it's only a few guys and they just have handguns and they, they just shoot him in the head. And I can see why Coppola for the movie made the death so much more elaborate 
and made it a lot longer, more gruesome. To think that Sonny Corleone, James Caan, could just be taken out with a few bullets is crazy. He is so tough in this whole movie. He's so intimidating. He's like really frightening. He's also got his own kind of charm, which makes you like him. Yeah, classic Jimmy the Dream Con. Exactly. The only way this could happen is if through this elaborate scheme, he is trapped and then ambushed by 10 guys, each with a machine gun, and is just shot up totally to pieces. That's a death that you, as a viewer of this movie for the first or for the hundredth time, are okay with accepting. James Con had 158 squibs on him that all exploded at different times. It's one of the great, I think it's one of the great movie, movie deaths. It's really, it's like they outdid the end of Bonnie and Clyde. We're just like, no, you want to see how you really shoot up someone and have a million squibs? Here's, here's this moment. It's really shocking because he's on his way to deal with uh, his sister's uh, abusive husband. And you think, okay, he's going to go kill this guy. And you're expecting that. Instead, he gets completely killed. And you're like, what? And, and I think this movie does a good job, especially at the beginning well, you don't really know who the main character is for a while. Like, you think it's called The Godfather and it's about Marlon Brando, but then you're kind of, like, hanging out with Al Pacino. You're hanging out with James Caan. Like, you're, like you're kind of bouncing around between all these people, and none of them really are solidified as the main character in the first, like, hour of the movie. It feels like kind of equally divided between all these people. And then eventually it's revealed to be more about Al Pacino, but you think it could have very well be about... James Caan seeking vengeance uh, or whatever. It's just really interesting how it, the information is. Is the book like that? Is the book like kind of like an ensemble sort of like about this family and you don't really have a main character right away? Yeah, the book is really like that. Like it starts out, Don Corleone is the godfather. And for the first like hundred or so pages, okay, it's about him. And you think if it's going to be about anybody else, it'll be about Tom Hagen. The book spends a lot of time with Tom Hagen and you think it may, it'll maybe switch viewpoints. It'll switch main characters over to him. Everything up through Michael killing Salazzo, the the drug dealer, at the restaurant happens in order like it does in the movie and then the book stops and it goes back to because we all wanted to know what happened to johnny fontaine in that movie did that happen and so then there's two chapters on johnny fontaine and what's been going on with him and his personal life and his ex-wife and his children and then the book flashes back to the very beginning of don corleone and all the stuff with robert de niro and godfather part two is in this chapter of the Godfather book. And then there's even, uh, it even goes into the mob war where Sonny gets involved fully with his father and they kill all their enemies and become the top family in New York. And then it goes to back to Johnny Fontaine because Mario Puzo thought like, we all want to know what's going on with Johnny Fontaine. And like, now here's chapters with Sonny's mistress who's this huge character in the book, frustratingly so, because she doesn't have anything to do with the narrative. If you took out all the chapters with her, you would get The Godfather of the movie. Where it's like, uh, oh, she had no effect. When did the book come out? The book came out in 1969, and it was a bestseller. For whatever reason, the introduction to the book, which was written by Mario Puzo's son, mentions that a a nonfiction book about the mafia had come out just the year before, and that had maybe stoked the public thirst for more mafia stories. And then the Godfather book comes out in 1969, and Robert Evans of Paramount buys it up for a really low price. But his own people 
don't want to make the movie because Sicilian gangster movies don't make money. And then the book becomes huge. And by then Coppola has been hired on to write and direct. And the best thing Coppola has going for him to direct The Godfather is that he's Italian. Like, is that why they went to him? It's like, you're the guy with the last name. It sounds like the kind of person that would know about this. We're hiring only you. Yes, that's exactly <laughs> what happened. Because so here's the, God, the making of The Godfather. And there's so much about the making of The Godfather. We could do our whole podcast. We could do several podcasts about just the making of The Godfather. So I highly recommend listening to Robert Evans's biography, Kid Stays in the Picture. The special features on The Godfather DVDs, of course. And Coppola's biography, Francis Ford Coppola, Filmmaker's Life by Michael Shoemaker or Schumacher. Anywho, so Robert Evans, he buys the rights to this novel. He and his assistant, Peter Bart, who, if you read about the new Hollywood, is a big, a big part of all that. And The Making of the Godfather is a great example of how the the artists, you know, the, the creative side, the writers, directors, and the executives work together, even though they don't really know they're working together to make the final product and how they both need each other. So Robert Evans isn't credited in this movie at all. So is this just something he just set up and then did he make money off of this movie? Like he just got the book and said, you should make this into a movie. Like what was his role? Cause he's, his name's not in the credits. Like this is kind of before it became a player or is this what made him the player that did like Chinatown and like, his, and Marathon Man, and so it's like... He became a player, like, right before this with Love Story. So being... He was the production chief at Paramount Studios. He wasn't the president of Paramount Studios, and he didn't own the studio. The studio had just been bought by a giant conglomerate called Gulf and Western. And in Mel Brooks's film, Silent Movie, Mel Brooks and his silent film company, they're bought out by a company called Engulf and Devour. And then who decides what movies get made is Robert Evans, who was hired because he was so young. They're like, well, you, you know what's going on. But then there were guys even younger than him, like Coppola, who actually make the films and have the crazy ideas. But Evans was involved only in that he was the production head of the whole studio. And it was Peter Bart that suggested Coppola because they decided, well, since these other bad Italian gangster films all star Jews and are made by Jews, we need to make an Italian gangster film that's actually starring Italians. Who's an Italian filmmaker? Well, there's Coppola. He made the Rain People and Finian's Rainbow. He's the only Italian filmmaker with experience. And both of those films came in on time and under budget. So they thought, okay, well, <laughs> you're good enough. Coppola is Italian. And hopefully he'll bring this film on time and under budget. And Coppola actually expanded the budget to this movie. When he took it over, it, it had been set in the present day to save money. In present day being the late 60s, early 70s. He decided, no, it has to be set just after World War II, like in the book. And that blew up the budget a lot more. He was constantly in threat of getting fired. Then as the rushes of what he shot came through, that combined with him winning the Oscar for Patton helped him keep the job. Let's talk about the Oscars. You kind of briefly talked about it, but like this movie swept, swept the Oscars. Like, of course it did because people loved this movie so much that it won the main award of picture director 
And what else to do? And what were the what were the sad movies of this team against? Like what sad movies that were also probably great, but knew they were going to lose because they were going against The Godfather. So funny you should mention that because The Godfather actually did not win most of its nominations. Both it and Cabaret were nominated for 10 Academy Awards. Cabaret won eight of its 10 nominations, including Best Director. Oh, so Coppola didn't win until Godfather Part Two. Right. Oh, wow. See, I always assumed he won for this one. Me too. I didn't know this until I watched the FX series, Fosse Verdon. (laughs) And he's like, take that, Coppola. I'm the best director and the better dancer. (laughs) And it's Sam Rockwell. So you're like, he is actually a good dancer. (laughs) Godfather actually won only three Oscars. That's great. So it was picture, actor. And screenplay, adapted screenplay. What won cinematography? Like, was Gordon and Willis even nominated? The cinematography nominations were Cabaret, which won Jeffrey Unsworth, and then 1776, Butterflies Are Free, which I've never heard of, The Poseidon Adventure, and Travels With My Aunt. Okay. That's crazy that Gordon Willis didn't get nominated for cinematography. Maybe people thought it was too dark. Maybe it was like that Game of Thrones episode where people were like, I can't see anything. It's, just, it's not good because it's too dark. See, I'm embarrassed. I assumed always that this movie just like won everything. I'm assuming then that part two made up for it and won more. Like did that win more awards than the first one? Because I haven't opinion. looked ahead, but I know like Coppola won his best director for part two. Yeah. I know that. Wow. See, I thought this movie was just like the movie that like won a million awards because everyone assumed from the get-go that it was all brilliant. Who so with all these great actors in this movie? Who won Best Supporting Actor that wasn't one of the million people that were great in this movie? Supporting Actor went to Joel Grey for Cabaret. Which, okay, I'm not going to argue with that. The other nominees were Eddie Albert for The Heartbreak Kid, James Caan, Robert Duvall, and Al Pacino. Wait, so Duvall, Caan, and Pacino all from The Godfather going against each other? Yeah. (laughs) Is that the most for one movie to have actors going against each other in the same category? Uh, yeah. I mean, as far as I'm aware of, the only other time that happened was in 1935 for Mutiny on the Bounty when Clark Gable, Charles Lawton, and Francho Tone were all nominated for Best Actor and split the vote and didn't, nobody from that movie won anything. And so then the following year, the supporting actor category was created for the first time. And then we have a long, decades-long history of lead performances being nominated in supporting actor. Al Pacino is like the lead. And in a way, couldn't you interpret that the title The Godfather is actually referring to Al Pacino, who becomes the new Godfather, you know? So isn't the titular character not Marlon Brando, but in fact, Al Pacino, as this is his story, as he's sort of like the son who doesn't want to be a part of this crime family, that kind of reluctantly goes into it and then kind of tries to back away and then gets pulled in and excels and rises. And then at the end, he is the Godfather. So the Godfather is Al Pacino, not in fact Marlon Brando. The title is referring to Pacino because the movie is definitely 
about his, this movie is his story, in my opinion. Like when you watch it, it's about his thing. It's about him. What were the other movies nominated for Best Picture from 1972? Because we're, we're really getting into like important stuff, like really important American cinema. Like what were the movie, like were they still pulling from some of the Hollywood kind of bigger stuff? Like was Poseidon Adventure up for Best Picture? Or were they going more into like some of this new Hollywood or stuff in between like The Godfather, which is like, feels new Hollywood, but clearly has the budget of a big, big Hollywood uh, movie. It is definitely all like non-traditional up to that point, non-traditional Hollywood stuff. So The Godfather wins, it's up against Cabaret, its main rival, Deliverance, The Immigrants. What's the... Uh, it's a Swedish film. Oh, with Max von Sydow, right? Yeah, with Max von Sydow about immigrants. So it, it's a, it's immigrants with an E, about Swedes yeah, that moved to Minnesota in the mid 19th century, and Sounder, which is about uh, black sharecroppers during the Great Depression, starring uh, Cecily Tyson. I I've never you know confession I've never seen Cabaret. I've never seen that movie. I love Bob Fosse, and I've seen everything else he's made other than Star 80 and Cabaret. Those are the two that I have not seen. Star 80 because it seems too disturbing, and I don't know if I can sleep sound after watching it. And Cabaret, I just never watched, even though I love Liza Minnelli. Never seen Cabaret. I need to add that to my list of things I need to watch. But the final thing maybe to talk about is The Great Cinematography by the legendary Gordon Willis. And this was sort of like the big, this was like the big thing that he's known for, for sure. Like how the first scene alone where it's really dark and like everybody's sitting in this very dark room and it's lit, like where the, you can't even see the walls behind anybody. It feels like so confined. And he became one of the great uh, cinematographers of the 70s, like not just with the sequel to Godfather, but he did like Annie Hall and all the President's Men. And then he kind of became Woody Allen's go-to guy and did Manhattan, which is one of the best-looking movies ever. Manhattan and is a beautiful-looking movie. Maybe the most be- one of the most beautiful. And, like, Zellig. And, like, he just was Woody Allen's guy. And it's just, it is very memorable the way it shot. It's very interesting. I, I remember, I don't know if it was in that, that cinematographer documentary that came out in the 90s, that Visions of Light or whatever it's called, that I remember watching a lot as a kid. And they talk about how uh, kind of crazy, how dark they shot a lot of these scenes intentionally, like made it very dark. <laughs> these people are sitting in these dark rooms. There's not a lot of light. And it's just, sort of, it's, the movie's very brown, but in a, in a beautiful way. Like, it's just like, it really feels like you're hanging out. Like, as I'm sure a lot of these things are sets, but they really feel intimate. They really feel like you're, they're kind of drawn to the people's face, especially in the beginning, because everything else is kind of blacked out. And you're just kind of looking at the people. And it's so good. Um, intense shadows on people's faces where you can't see like their eyes necessarily. Like Yeah, I was watching this movie during the day. I had to turn off all the lights in my house and close all the curtains so I could see it properly because Gordon Willis shot it so dark. Yeah. That just any glare like was brighter than whatever was going on on screen. And when you see it, 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 yeah, it looks beautiful. It looks gorgeous. And it's so dark 
because these are dark people. It's a dark story. It, it, it just fits. It's great. You know, like, it's amazing that we can talk about this movie so much, even though it's like a movie that everybody knows about, that everybody's talked about. Like, it's shown in every film school class. You know, like, this is a movie that everyone knows about, and yet we still spent over an hour gabbing about it excitedly. Like, and it's always great that a movie that's, that comes up before you were born, you know, that's decades old, can still be exciting and fresh and feel very modern in its own way. Like it feels like there's a very short list of movies that have that effect. Like I think like Seven Samurai is a movie like that, or like I said earlier, Sunset Boulevard, where it's just like, it's timeless. And it's even though it's clearly a movie of its time, the way it is told and the way it is made, it's like, it feels very fresh. It feels very exciting. Like it's still just as exciting as any new type of movie that's coming out right now. I think it's just a test to just like how talented Coppola and all these people were that made it. But I think we shouldn't talk about this movie forever because people need to listen to the next episode that we're going to do. We thought, so here we are, Coppola finally truly making his name for himself with this movie. Like truly, like a household name. We, we all know who Francis Ford Coppola is. And yet after this, he goes back to being a screenwriter for hire for The Great Gatsby, which will be our next episode. And I'm very excited because I haven't seen that movie since I had to watch it in high school after I had to read the book. The, uh, the Great Gatsby is one of my favorite books. I was very glad that we watched this movie. I'm going to not wait another 10 years to watch it again. And I am not only excited about The Great Gatsby, but I'm very pumped to watch part two of The Godfather because it's just like, I'm ready just to keep going. And like we said in the last episode, like we're now in the, the golden age of Coppola. Like it's going to be all such good stuff for a while and i'm very excited to be going through all these movies right now i'm very excited to watch the great gatsby but also talk about the godfather 2 and the best thing is about godfather 2 is that all the notes that i didn't get to about the godfather we can talk about in godfather 2 well thanks for listening everybody this has been a great time doing this episode i hope you enjoyed this we love talking about movies. We love talking about good movies, which The Godfather definitely is. So we hope you enjoyed listening to this. And if you haven't watched The Godfather in a while and we made you want to watch it again, we uh, appreciate that. Uh, we're on social media, on Twitter, at the Director's Wall. Email us, uh, directorswall at gmail.com. Find Godfather at your local library. That's a much better place than Netflix. Once you're allowed to leave your house and go to the library... Get the Godfather, because I'm sure they have it. Yeah, my local library has a shocking, a shocking selection of diverse and quality and obscure movies. And that's where I'm getting my movies now. Thank you. Uh, shelter in place, uh, like, like you should still be doing. And we will catch you next time at a big party out on... Uh, Eagle's Head or West Egg or whatever. It's been a long time since I read that book. And as much as we dissed a Robert Redford, we're about to see one of his finest performances in The, in the Great Gatsby. Louis Brazzi sleeps with the fishes. Luca Brazzi. Luca. Whatever. <laughs>